This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today, we're welcoming Brigitte Yeruso, international speaker, coach, and leadership trainer. Brigitte connects and accelerates value-driven entrepreneurial leaders and change agents to make a more abundant living. That means that she helps you make money while making a positive impact on people and the planet. She helps coaches, consultants, and service business leaders to attract more clients and sell with more intention and integrity. And she helps businesses that are scaling to create equitable and inclusive organizational cultures where diverse people can thrive and contribute their full value. Welcome, Brigitte. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Leela. I appreciate it. And I so appreciate the topic that you are bringing to light. So freaking important. I am so excited having these conversations. You are my fourth interview. And I can't tell you what just incredible rich material is coming out of these. So um, so I like, to, I like to keep the conversation a little bit spontaneous. So we might go some places that we didn't plan. Um, but why don't we start with... Um, why don't we start with your definition of power? When when I say power, what does that mean to you? Whew, that is so funny that you're asking this question first, because I actually had a conversation with my six-year-old daughter this morning over breakfast, and I said, Tallulah, what do you think power means? And hearing her speak, obviously, I hear my own voice, right? Because she's my daughter, and I hear her echoing the things I say. And some of the things she said to me, it's power means speaking your truth, like owning your voice and not being afraid to share that truth out in the world. So that's one way that I think of power. A lot of people think of power as dominance or being stronger than, and that's one particular definition of power, which I think is what's problematic about the lens through which we view power. We think about dominance and someone else being dominated as the outcome of power. And I think of power from the construct of using my power, my leverage, my authority, my credibility for constructive outcomes, for social change, for impact, to push forward through things that are difficult with strength and fearlessness to get at truth, to get at resolutions, to get at outcomes that serve all. I think that's how I'm thinking about power more and more. So that sounds like a perfect dovetail with you telling us a little bit about what you do in the world beyond the intro that I just read. Yeah. So basically, I think of myself as a disruptor. I've always been a disruptive person. You know this about me because I'm an intensive, because you're an intensive. And I never got the idea of following rules and fitting in with structures. I, From the point that I was a child in Catholic school, I remember looking around and thinking, this is all a bunch of bullshit. It's totally made up. I'm not buying any of it. So from that place of disruption, I've always wanted to be an agent of change and an agent that helped people with less of a voice or less access or that were marginalized to have a voice. So my work was for years in the space of grassroots economic development 
initiatives overseas to help really, really marginalized communities. And over the years, it's evolved into me understanding what my role is now in helping to elevate the visibility, the power, the impact of less represented people. And the place that I feel that I can do that, that I actually have leverage, that I actually can make an impact for now, is in the space of business and entrepreneurship. For me, that's the particular place where I feel like with my life skills, with my voice, with my disruptive spirit, with my passion for being a conscious business leader, I'm all about helping less represented entrepreneurs. And when I say less represented, I mean people like women, queer, disabled, black, Hispanic, mixed race, not the typical cookie cutter person of privilege that you see in positions of financial wealth and authority that come from owning their business, having a lot of of capital and access and power at their disposal. My goal is to get more access to capital, power, and leverage into the hands of less represented people in the space of business. Because for now, for better or for worse, we live in a capitalist society. I work with lots of people in the space of sustainability. And yes, I would love to wave my incense and I would love to wave my Palo Santo and have us return to the days of my ancestors of the Tainos where we could trade shit. But that's not what (laughs) the soup is that we're in. So we're in a capitalist society. And for the for now, not having a position of authority in government to change the structure, the only place I can see where I can make an impact is in the space of business, ensuring that more diverse people have more access to the mindset, the tools, and the strategies that are going to help them get to that next level of leadership, of power, of authority in a space that's typically dominated by people that are of the dominant class. And so I'm a subversive, former social justice, former human rights, former social advocate turned conscious capitalist. Right now, my advocacy hat is still in my wardrobe. And the Weapon of choice, I'm sorry to have to use that term because I do believe we are fighting something here when it comes to inequity and lack of access. The way that I've chosen right now is to get more capital into the hands of brown, female, mixed, different leaders so that they become those that are visible, that have a voice, that are seen as the thought leaders whose stories, whose vision, whose narrative, whose life's experience is what's informing the direction that business is taking. I mean, that's the only way right now I can think of how to utilize my unique gifts. I don't know if that'll change in the future, but that's that's my for now right now. So you're talking about diversifying the power center in the existing systems of power. Indeed. And the system of power is where the money is, where capital is. And capital, unfortunately, is what drives everything. It's what drives elections. It's what drives the political candidates we see. It's what drives what we see in the media. It's what drives everything. And because capital is concentrated in the hands of a very specific demographic of people whose core values do not any longer reflect that of the universe that we live in, it is very problematic. And so People often look at money and power and capital as the root of the evil. I disagree. It's the hands that wield the capital and the power that are problematic. 
not the capital and the power in and of themselves. So talk to talk to us a little bit, you know, obviously you're focusing in the entrepreneurial space and obviously you've got a really clear mission around um, di- basically diversifying entrepreneurship as a way of transferring power. So talk to us a little bit about the ways in which entrepreneurship is powerful because I think a lot of people who grew up like I did with, with you know, parents or a parent – in my case, it was one parent who um, who have a kind of nine to five salary job. Think of that as a as a locus of if, of security, which is a kind of power. But excuse me, but entrepreneurship doesn't have that same kind of power. So, talk to us a little bit about the power of entrepreneurship. Yeah, and it's really a complicated thing to talk about because entrepreneurship can feel scary as fuck. And it is a very disruptive path and is very much at odds often with what our family wants for us because they may not understand that pathway. They're trying to protect us from harm and from failure. And so often when we strike out on the path of becoming an entrepreneur, the narratives are very much geared toward failure, toward investing and losing money, for wasting time, right? So there's all these narratives. And oftentimes, that is what the path can look like for an entrepreneur. I want to be fair here that 80% of startups fail, and that's a particular type of business. So often we read this data and statistics, and we don't understand like that data doesn't hold true for every single type of business, right? So there's other data to show that starting a small business is like one of the number one ways that women of color right now are becoming financially independent. And the largest sector of people opening small businesses and doing better in small businesses is women of color, right? So starting our own business can look like lots of different things. And it is a path to not only financial freedom, but freedom from the bullshit construct, the shackles, the actual shackles. I use this word purposefully. So follow me here of colonialism, of the stories that we've been fed around who should be in charge, who should run the show, who has the power, who runs the church, who runs commerce, and who is there as the worker in the situation, right? So we've got these long historic narratives around who should be in which structures and which places in society. And for many of us, those narratives, whether we are aware of them or not, are part of our own inner beliefs around where we should fall in society. So even myself as a mixed race woman that presents white, that for all intents and purposes has a shit ton of privilege and opportunity, I still have inner narratives that run from the Latino side of my family that's like, just work hard, have a stable job, don't rock the boat, follow the rules, live a straight, narrow life, you know, follow the, the church and the Bible and be a good wife and stop being so disruptive and all this stuff that we don't realize how much stuff we're told around how to live, how to to think about opportunity and money and abundance. And for so many of us, we don't actually believe that financial freedom and abundance and the choice to run a business and have money is available to us. We may say it out loud, like, oh, I'm going to have a business and I'm going to be successful. But we have a deeper inner narrative that is counter that. And unless we recognize where that narrative comes from, that historically society does not put up this independent path of entrepreneurship as for all, it is different for different kinds of people to walk that path. And it doesn't mean that we are less 
able, that we are inherently, as we are born, less capable of success, we may just not have the right toolkit or the right access for success. And that toolkit for many types of business programs and coaches is a lot of superficial shit, like a business plan and a this and a marketing strategy. And what is so often missing from that toolkit is the deep inner work around constructing a narrative that you are actually going to succeed as an entrepreneur, that it's available, that it's possible. And then there's access opportunity, capital, and networks. And that is where people succeed and fail as entrepreneurs. So, so often the reason entrepreneurs fail, lack of access to capital to grow, and they don't have enough partners and like affiliates and people that are going to work with them to help them reach their ideal audience, to open doors, to help them get funding, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a complete toolkit that people need to succeed as entrepreneurs and they can, but they may not have the full toolkit or even know what pieces they're missing or where to access it. And that's what has to shift for entrepreneurs to really be able to succeed. And then there has to be just like a no bullshit conversation around, no, it does not look the same for a black or brown founder as it does for a young white guy that graduates Stanford. And if you're saying that it is, there's some bullshit there that needs to get disrupted. Yeah. It's not the same. It does not mean they're not born with equal value or equal possibility. It's how it unfolds insofar as access and opportunity that's going to differ for both. And with each getting equal access and opportunity, then yes, they do have the same potential. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you, you referred to this um, a minute or so ago, you know, thinking about the way that, that power and the locus of power is so much about about knowing the system, about that sort of black box of whatever it is, right? When we think about um, people who who want to go to college as part of their path, and the the ways in which access to college are gate kept simply by knowledge, and then we think about entrepreneurship, oh and it's God. the same thing, right? It's it's if you want to become, let's let's say, if you want to want to do corporate trainings. Right, and you've never done corporate trainings before. How do you even know what ballpark to price your stuff in? How do you even know how to write a pitch? How do you know what to expect or what the company is expecting? Nobody's going to tell you that unless you know somebody who's done it or who's at the other on the other side of that tra- interaction or that transaction. Right? If you know somebody in HR, if you know somebody who's bringing trainers in, then you can find out maybe how much you should charge and yes, how you should and then it. even if you get it, and then if you and then even if you did have the information, do you have the support to go and do the things that you now know you need to do, which is like the next factor, right? right? So you could have it, like you could have someone give you, perfect example, my husband was a kid in a AVA, it was, he was in a remedial vocational high school, incredibly smart young boy, Puerto Rican very Latino presenting, poor family, someone decided that he could be a fit for the aviation program that would get him out of his school into an aviation high school to become a Mm -hmm. pilot. My husband was thrilled with the idea. So the one problem was solved. So he didn't have access his first year at high school. His second year, someone found him and gave him the information and the access to the program. His parents both worked multiple jobs. One didn't speak English well. They were ashamed and unavailable to come in for the interview that he needed to have a parent at to be able to get into the aviation school. 
He didn't get in, not because he wasn't good enough, but because the program said, if your parents are not here to support you, we can't let you in the program. He didn't get in and it didn't happen. And so that's like the second piece. It's like, you may have now information on how to access it, but then do you have the support to take the steps you need? So for, again, going back to the example of a founder who's a young woman who maybe has amazing opportunity, maybe she's also working three jobs to make it because she's also a single mom and her trajectory as an entrepreneur does not look the same as a woman who's got a husband who's bringing home six figures that she has a cushion to then follow her passion and launch a business. And there's not the same level of risk. Like to, again, to pretend that these two women are going to have the same experience on this, on the side of resilience, intelligence, wisdom, that single mom may actually have more. She may have a bigger toolkit because of everything she's been through. And from the perspective of just time and sustainability, she may not have enough at her disposal to invest what needs to happen to grow a business. So this is the vicious cycle that has to get disrupted and that I have to often work with my clients around like stages and interim strategies because you need all the pieces. You need the mindset. You need the clear strategy. Where do I have to go? What do I have to do? Who do I have to talk to? What do I need to tell them? And then once you've got the mindset and the strategy and you know what you need to do, you need to have the support and the resources to allow you to go do it in a way that's not going to make you burnt out and overwhelmed, right? And so without all those pieces in place, it's really hard. And that's where power and privilege come in, right? People with more access to power and more access to privilege can make those kinds of decisions to delegate, to get other people on their on on board with them. And that's where you leverage that, right? So, and everyone can have that leverage, but it's, is there a community of support that they can access for that? Do they have people in their network that can even afford to support them that are available for that, right? And that's where we have to think about how do we grow our network of access and support and who we're connected with. And then what are the ways that you do that, that stay in alignment with your values? Because then that's the next level where it can get you to a place where you're in your desire to grow your network and connect with people that are perhaps outside of your community circle. You may find yourself in a community where there are different values and you start to get pulled right? In different directions. And that's the, that's where it gets really complicated. And I see this happening so frequently for female founders, for founders of color, where the only places to access capital often and resources are communities that look very different than their own with very different core values and a very different vision and goal in mind for supporting them. And so what are the strings attached with it, right? Because with money comes power. And so you would take investment or input or support from someone. And there's a quid pro quo somewhere. There's the expectation that you're going to deliver on something that's beneficial to them. And that may or may not work, right? It works best when they're fully aligned with your value, which it takes us back to the problem that there are not enough diverse people in that space of power and capital and access to that to then fund and create opportunities for others. So that's where we have to like disrupt that whole paradigm. Right. And make sure that there is diversity representation in all those circles of power so that it starts to shift. And that is happening. To be fair, like we can get super negative and talk about what's not and where we are not yet. And we can also look at 
yes, what is happening? And there are more black and brown founders now than ever before. There are more female founders than ever before. There are now more female VCs. And yes, there are more VCs of color. Is the percentage still paltry compared to those of the dominant class that's typically in those places? Sure. Absolutely. But are we moving the needle? Yes, we are. You better damn well believe we, we are. are. And, there, and it's not going to change. It's not going to backslide. There are coalitions starting to, to collect of people who are recognizing that the power is, you know, it's great to have the power as an individual, but unless you're really like, you know, Bill Gates or at his level, your, your individual power yes. to make change is so much smaller than your power in community. And so there, there are entire VC firms now, which are focused on founders of color, focused on women or women founders of color. Um, and, and I think that the more that we do that, the more that we create those networks and just say, you know what, I'm done because there's, there's bringing this back to the power question, right? There's, there's an enormous amount of power in moving the focus and decentering the people who have traditionally held power. There's an enormous amount of power in moving the focus and saying, you know what? I don't need to prove myself to you. I don't need to meet your standards. I um, recently had an, an interview with um, Tiana Dodson, who does um, fat empowerment work. And she's, she's talking, she's doing incredible work. She lives in France and, um, and she's doing incredible, incredible work around the idea that, that we don't have to all have the same idea of what's attractive, Right. Who's setting that agenda and whose bullshit is that? And how much are we, how much is everybody else turning themselves into a pretzel trying to fit that very small profile? And it's similar in the VC world, right? You know, I don't need to prove myself to a rich white dude because that's not necessarily who my best audience is. Yeah. And getting back to these larger coalitions and groups and business associations, there is a heightened awareness of the fact that lacking inclusivity and equity is a business problem too. Right. So in the past, it was like, this is a social problem. It's a justice issue. It's a do the right thing issue. Yes. And it is a fucking business problem. And there are enough right. experts- There's a business case for it. Exactly. And now that people are able to make that business case, listen, I don't really care how a company gets to the realization that they've got to do something <laughs> about it. We've just got to get everyone right. to the realization. And if they need to see numbers and data, but that's what's happening. And even again, business associations, and, and I'm going to plug one that I'm a part of that for a while, I was not clear that it was aligned for me, but I'm part of the conscious capitalism Bay Area um, community. And I'm, I've been invited to take a position on the local board and the organization as a whole is doing the work to look at who is at the table and who is not. And a lot of companies are coming to that realization that there are multiple problems that are presented when there are not enough people at the table at positions of power and authority. So a diverse organization typically looks like what UC Berkeley looks like. I'm sorry to have to call a spade a spade. And that's not a racist term, by the way. I've done my homework. It comes from something that has to do with a, a game that was played years ago and people have misconstrued it. So a spade a spade is not a racist term. And UC Berkeley is an institution that is historically white. And everyone that's in a position of financial authority and power is typically white male. There are many people of color on staff, but they are in 
positions of less authority and power. That's not equitable. So yes, the institution may look diverse, but where is power concentrated? That's where there's usually a problem. And that's why we have to look through the lens of not equity, just equity. Yes, diversity. Yes, equity. Yes, inclusion. And then there's another lens, justice, which I'm actually going to plug some women that I know that if this is something you're like, uh, this is a lot to digest. I don't even understand half of what this stuff is. Uh, reach out to Trudy LeBron or Louisa Duran or Diane Johnston of Conscious Capitalism, East Bay, and have a conversation with one of these women of color that's a consultant that can help you sort through what do these different constructs mean? Because again, the conversation is so often around power needs to be distributed among diverse people. Yes. How? How is that done in a way that's equitable, in a way that's inclusive, in a way that makes sense, and in a way that creates constructive impact, right? So just having one person of color at the table in a board of 15 white people, which is what my husband's looking at right now at his organization, which is a social impact law fund, sounds like a great idea, except it's not. When you have one voice at the table with 15 other people, there's no leverage. And is that an environment for that person to actually feel courageous and safe to share their perspective? Like, let's get real. Do you want to be that one naysayer in a room of 15 people always? And no. how often does that person want to show uh, well, up to be that squeaky wheel? It's emotionally exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting, and it's also not effective. There are a lot of studies now that are showing that when you have that one person, whether they're one person at a board table or one person in an organization, you know, the organization hires one woman of color to start diversifying, right? They're, they're, there's no malicious intent there. They hire somebody because they want to start the diversity conversation, and they want to start acting it out. And so they hire a woman of color, they're deliberate in their hiring process, and they make that a priority. And then it turns out, quote unquote, that the woman of color doesn't understand the organization and becomes the problem, becomes a scapegoat, and then gets asked to leave. And that cycle will repeat itself ad infinitum. And so the, the, the questions that we have to engage, especially around diversity and inclusion work, the questions that we have to engage are what are the what are the holistic ethical ways of of diversifying a historically white institution? Is it possible to diversify a historically white institution when when the power imbalance is so strong? And and if you're gonna try to do that, what kinds of supports do you need to put in place to make that effective? Right. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Um, I would also recommend the work of Desiree Lynn Attaway, especially if you're doing this work as an individual. She does online classes and in-person trainings, and she is phenomenal. Um, Yay. Yeah. There, I mean, the, the thing is, we live in the internet era, right? If you're going to tell me that you don't have resources, I'm going to tell you to get on Google. So, <laughs> I mean, really, like... I grew up without the internet. I know what it was like to have to go to the library and look something up in the encyclopedia and hope it wasn't out of date, but that's not our world now. So yeah. so when, when you think about your work as it intersects with power and ethics and community, what are the places that you see your clients most um, most likely to succeed in their work to flip the script? So 
where it becomes most likely for us to succeed is when we are in deepest alignment with our true voice, with our true purpose, with who we really are and how we really want to show up in the world. So one of the biggest challenges I see for women in business or diverse people in business is that we find ourselves morphing and shape-shifting into something that fits the mold, fits the norm, fits the oh, dominant so culture, true. which takes us takes us away from our true nature and how we really are in the world and how we want to show up. And for women of color and people of color and people who are queer, that then gets exacerbated at that intersectionality, right? So then they get to even further tone it down and rein it in to conform to the dominant culture. When I find my clients are most successful is when they disrupt the fuck out of that. First, internally, in owning that, like, this is me fully who I am and how I show up in the world, literally ass out, right? This is my true being. This is how I'm meant to be in the world. And I'm going to find a way to have my business allow me to show up this way fully and attract those for whom this is resonant. And those are my people. And then I build my business on a foundation of a niche of people that work with me because of the way that I am, not in spite of it. And then all of my efforts in the world, in my messaging, in my marketing, in my branding, don't have me twisting and figuring out how to create an illusion of something other than what I am. So when we can be our brand, as my client Hallie says, be the brand you want to be in the world, you just show up with your deepest truth, right? Your core values. Like I'm a freaking social justice advocate at heart. I'm a, I'm a disruptor. I'm no bullshit. I'm this way. And people come to me because of that. And if they're repelled by it, then I'm okay and they're not for me and they're for someone else. That's when my clients are successful. When they're trying to be professional or fit someone else's mold of how they should be, and this is what happens with women that are diverse and different, differently oriented, people that orient differently in their gender and their expression, they feel like in order to fit the mainstream or over here, and those that are disrupting and doing the best are like, no, I'm going to be this way and then my people will come to me and then there are people in the mainstream that that's going to resonate with and they're going to come my way too. And maybe there's some people that are going to run screaming for the hills. And please do. And God bless please them. Please run screaming for the hills. God if bless you. Don't like, God bless you. On your right? Way up. One of the classic, most, most obvious moments of that for me happens, I would say probably at least once a month. Somebody says to me that I don't talk like a minister. I don't show up like a minister. <laughs> like, well, you don't. Thank right? God. And, and I'm like, no offense to ministers, but thank God. Well, you know, there's, there's a story about who a minister is. And you know what that story is rooted in? Like 19th totally. century patriarchy. Am I interested in perpetuating 19th right. century? It does anything about me so that I want to perpetuate 19th century patriarchy? Right. No. So, totally. so for no. me, like having the opportunity to to get out there and and say listen if you don't like the way that i do ministry that's cool there are lots of people out there doing ministry in a different way probably more like what you're expecting that's more comfortable for you and that's the thing if you're seeking comfort with the dominant culture you've got it you got it right. <laughs> like there's plenty of people for you 
But for those, and I think that the direction is that there are more people that are seeking something different. In business, people are changing their values. They're changing who they want to do business with. There is a deeper awareness now of conscious businesses and businesses that are creating and people have more choices now and they get to like be picky and choosy and more and more younger generations they're more educated around their choices and they are choosing differently and companies that are not paying attention to that are going to fall by the wayside they're going to have problems they're not going to be able to attract young talent they're going to have a bunch of dinosaurs that are eventually going to age out and then they're going to be kind of screwed in truth and so you know Companies need to pay attention to the direction that things are moving in and the fact that they're, for better or for worse, there is a shift happening. There's a deepening awareness around environmental issues, equity issues, sustainability issues, and the rest. And companies that are clear around those issues and are clear in their commitment to their core values and are walking the talk, they are coming out ahead. And there is enough evidence to show that that is the direction that things are moving in. And pretty soon, it's like if you're not on the bus, you're not in the game. You may be on the bus and be lost, and the bus keeps going off the road. It's okay. That's the journey. Like, that's the other part of this work. It's like, if you're thinking, like, I'm on the bus because I'm woke and I've got it on lock and, like, you're not – That's not, not actually on the like, bus. Like, we're all <laughs> – Yeah, we're all floundering through this. No one has all the answers. It's complicated as hell. And the only way forward is to be curious around how do we keep doing better? What's working? What's not working? And then listen to people that are not the dominant culture because they're the ones that are having a different experience than the rest of us, right? So that's, I mean, those are my three things that I would say to continue to think about, which is, you know, are you on the bus? Are you with with the direction things are moving in at this point? Are you aware that this is important? Are you willing to fumble and fuck it up? Are you available for feedback and guidance? And are you listening to people that don't look like you? If you look like me, for example, are you looking to, pe- looking to other people that don't look like you, that don't have the same background, that don't have the same life journey and life story to see what it's like through their lens, right? And if we keep those things in mind, we're going to do better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that that business of not looking through other people's lenses, I can't speak for most of the rest of the world, but we certainly don't do a great job of it in, in these dominant North American cultural spaces. So, so I'm, one of the things I'm really interested in, and, um, and I think that you might have some really, really specific things to say about this, as we think about ourselves as power holders, because almost every time I start a conversation about power, it starts out with with the us of the conversation locating us outside of the power holding circle. And you're intimately involved in moving people from from placing themselves outside that circle to placing themselves inside that circle. So when when we are power holders, which we are now, but but especially as we move, as your clients move, um, as your as your target clients move from positions of less power to positions of more power to positions of enough power that they could reasonably be called power holders culturally, um, what are the things that you think they need to pay most attention to so that they don't lose their inner compass? Keep thinking about the we and not the me, because as we gain more power and more authority and more possibility for ourselves, we can get lost in the sense that we feel pulled to keep going after the next big thing. And 
I'm constantly in that place myself of like, this is how far I've come. Who's, who have I brought with me? Who am I going to continue to partner with to go to the next stage together versus how far am I going to get ahead on my own? Because then we're going to wind up isolated, lonely, and feeling disconnected from where we've come. And so for many of us, it's that balance of like, yes, there are some people we will naturally lose connection with because they're not aligned with the direction our life is going in. Maybe they're not ready or they're too at odds or they're too triggered by what what's going on. And that's going to happen. And that's part of this journey is, you know, we do have to experience some loss when we are leveling up and moving to that next space of power, opportunity, and privilege. And we don't have to leave people behind. We can continue to offer opportunities to come with us. And for those that want to get on the ride and go with us, they'll come. Those that aren't ready, we can't force them. But we can continue to make ourselves available and make it clear that we're not just in it for ourselves, that there's something greater and more collaborative. So that's, I mean, when I think about the one value, the one thing that I I'm most committed to and most afraid of losing as I scale and grow is that we mentality. Like it's not just about me. It's about every time I'm successful in my business, I think about clients and other people in my circle. Like how can I help them also benefit from this next level of success or opportunity or access, right? That I have. So I think if we all keep that mindset, we're going to do fine. The other thing that, that I find interesting, you know, you talked about losing, there are some people we're going to lose and there are some values we're going to shed, right? If you grew up in an, in, in an environment like the one that you just described or like the one that, that my partner grew up in where, you know, it was work hard every day, you know, basically be a good cog in the wheel because that's the only way we're going to get ahead. Um you know, you have to shed that value right away if you're going to become an entrepreneur because entrepreneurs are not good cogs in anybody's wheel. Um, but, but then there are other values that you might have to shed too. Like, um, you know, I know that, that my family of origin often speaks pretty badly of people who are wealthy. And if I hadn't started and didn't continue to do work around shedding that, I would be very conflicted about wanting to build wealth for myself because mm-hmm. although I see building wealth as a path to power, right? I see it. And, and when, when I say power, it's like, well, what do I mean by power? What am I going to do with that power? Well, I, I'm going to keep the door open. I'm going to pull people up behind me. I'm going to, you know, open possibility. I can only do that if I have certain resources, including a certain amount of wealth. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so there's this there's this loss of community. There's this this identity shift. There's um, I know for a lot of folks this is less true in my my community of color. But I know in a lot of communities of color there's an association of becoming wealthy with with selling out. Um, mm-hmm. South Asians don't have that problem in the same way that a lot of other communities do. Um, yep. We're pretty comfortable with yep. the idea of being wealthy, but. But I, but I think that as we, as we put these pieces together and as we move and as we grow, one of the things that I'm realizing is that we need to make sure that we have a community that is aligned with us. Yes, exactly. We can't, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's not going it alone because it gets incredibly isolating and difficult when you don't have other people that you can 
be honest and talk about the things that you're grappling with. I can't tell you how many women I see in my space of coaching, consulting that are suddenly, you know, making six figures, doing pretty well, and they're embarrassed to mm-hmm. talk about their new problems with their friends because they feel guilty. Like, how dare I talk with another woman of color about, quote, my problem with my business when she's got totally different problems than I do? I feel horrible. I feel embarrassed. I feel ashamed to have this much. And if I could pinpoint one of the narratives that I see time and time again that my clients share with me in earnest that keeps them from growing is they literally feel guilty for having it easier than their parents or their community or their brothers or their sisters or their cousins. And I've grappled this with myself. Like when we're in that space of guilt, we get paralyzed. And it's it's like we can be the duality of still loving and honoring and staying connected with who the people are that we grew up with or where we came from. And we can build and construct new communities of people around us that are in a similar place or ahead of us. And it's, it's a yes and, right? And so often we think we have to like separate and choose. And it's not easy. It's not easy because we also have limited space for social interaction and time and how do we prioritize. And that's all that stuff that we have to constantly be doing that inner personal development, inner awareness of like, what matters? You know, who am I surrounding myself with? Like we may have people in our family that we love dearly and they're draining and they're mentally exhausting and they're always upset and they're never happy and they're always dissatisfied. And is it our job? Is it our dharma to always be available to them for dumping that on us? You know, again, these are these family narratives that somehow it's our job or our responsibility to have to hold space for everyone when we're doing well. And those are those narratives that can really undo us. I mean, I grew up with the narrative of like, you never put old people in a home, you take care of the elderly. Like that shit is all great in theory. Like God loved the elders and the ancestors that said this shit because they were living in fucking ancestral land and they had a big goddamn fucking community of everybody living in tents five feet away from each other. So that made a lot of sense. Does not make sense. It does not make sense when you live in a modern society and you have a fucking $2,500 mortgage and $3,000 in property tax to keep your elder in a home that you could rent for $3,000 a month and pay $6,000 in care costs, which then causes you to put yourself in a grave and leave your child parentless, right? So maybe it would have made sense 50 years ago for me to take care of my elder myself that narrative doesn't work now. And in choosing to disrupt that narrative, I saved my mother from further decline because I couldn't care for her at home the way she needed to be cared for with her level of disability. I saved my kid from the next, from being the next kid who has intergenerational trauma because her mother's a hot mess, because her mom's depressed, because her mom doesn't take care of herself, because her mom had a stroke taking care of her mom, right? And this is the cycle. This is complicated stuff, right? So it's like, how do we continue to navigate the new alignment for who we are and how we're showing up in the world? And there may not be a model for it. We may have to create our own model. And how much more power do we have when we make appropriate decisions for ourselves, I think I, I know some people who are caring for their elders at home. I know some people who are putting them in care facilities, which, let's face it, are a lot better than they used to be. So that's another piece of that, right, is that the care facility opportunities, if you find a good one, care facilities now are not what they were 50 or 100 years ago. And so putting someone, quote, in a home is a completely different conversation than it used to be. But, but, but and also, when we 
when we make the space, like I know this is true for your story because because you and I have worked together and I've heard your story, you know, I'm that that when you make the space in your life by leveraging the privilege you already have, it allows you to create more power, which allows you to create more resources, which allows you to be more present for the world in whatever way you're called to it. So by making the choice you made, you created space in your life to really dedicate yourself to your business, which you couldn't have done otherwise. No, it would have been impossible. And it's like you said, it's the the shifting in the mindset of a care home could be this dark, scary, horrible, depressing place for your elder. And when you create that narrative and that's what you're seeking because you've created that story, that's what you're going to get. And that was what I got. When I had that narrative, those are the kinds of care homes I found for my mom. And it was a nightmare and it was self-sabotage and it didn't work and I'd have to bring her home, et cetera. When I had a mindset of abundance, like I'm going to find the smallest, best care home with the best care staff and Latino people that get her and it's small, blah, 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 blah. It looks like a house, doesn't feel like a... I set the ideal. I went in in search of that and it was expensive. And then I said, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to afford this because this is what I really want for her. That's when it shifted, right? And that's the scary part because we're not conditioned to think like that, that I get to have the best. Right. But that's the power of entrepreneurship. You know, I asked you earlier, what's the power of entrepreneurship? One of the powers of entrepreneurship that I keep bringing into everywhere I go, including my nonprofit clients and my institutional clients and my my one-on-one clients is when you're, when you're thinking like a salaried person, you look at something and you evaluate whether or not it fits into the budget you have. When you're thinking like an entrepreneur, you look at something and you evaluate how you're going to make the money. You evaluate it on its own merits. And then you're like, oh, I need that. How am I going to make that money? How am I going to bring that money in the door? There's a tremendous amount of power in not allowing someone else's idea of our value, literally, like how much money are you worth to this company, their idea of your value, to dictate what you can and can't do. Now, obviously, we both live in the Bay Area. There are people who have salaries that are so large that it doesn't really affect their ability to do the things they want to do. And so they don't, they don't need, they don't need to get out of the salary model in order to have that kind of freedom. But, but for those of us who aren't working in high level tech jobs, that's, you know, our really our one of our only gateways to that kind of freedom is to say, is to say, well, okay, I'm going to treat this like a thing that I can change rather than a thing that I'm stuck with. You know, just like you said, finding the vision of the home and then being like, I'm going to go find the home and then finding, finding the money to pay for the home because you found what you wanted and it just cost money. Yep. Exactly. An yep. old mentor of mine that is exactly it. An old mentor of mine used to say, that's the easy kind of problem. You throw money at it and it goes away. And when she first said that I was in college and I Absolutely. I was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. The hard problems are the ones with money. But she was she was the um, the moderator of the Unitarian Universalist Association um, for a large chunk of her her post retirement career. And she was right. People are complicated as fuck. By comparison, problems that are solvable entirely with an infusion of cash are very easy to solve. 
Mm-hmm. 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 Indeed. And that's the thing. I mean, it doesn't mean money solves all your problems, but money can help solve a problem. Absolutely. It's not the only thing because I probably could have found the money to take care of my mom. Again, I the money was probably going to be available no matter what, but for me, it was the mindset right. of doing something that scared me, that I was unfamiliar with, that I had a negative false narrative around, that I had to like really look at where's this story, where's this fear, where's this belief coming from? And it literally took me four years Mm -hmm. of coaching. And I would have never got there with traditional therapy. It's not to knock traditional therapy for trauma, for certain types of depression. It's absolutely necessary for certain things Therapy is the worst route because you sit and you tell the same bullshit story over and over and your therapist goes, I hear you. That's really valid versus saying, are you sure we can't call bullshit on that? Are you sure that's true? That does depend on your therapist. But yeah, when you reinforce your your neuronal pathways over and over and over again, you tell that narrative and you just build that. You keep that super highway clear and free and well-maintained. Like You're never going to take another path if that's the super highway you've offered yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Leela, it's been so awesome doing this with you. And I just, again, I appreciate so much that you're having these conversations with people. It's so freaking important. And I just love it. Keep doing what you're doing, lady. Thank you. Um, it's it's really, the conversations are turning out to be so rich and so diverse. It's a, it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. So before we go, um, Do you have any last words about power for folks? Yeah, I feel like power is a choice and it's available to you. And when and if you have opportunity to access it, do it. And then just notice what happens when you step into that place of owning that power is something that's available to you and try it on. And then figure out what's aligned for you in that in the having of that power think about the power in having it and the options and the possibilities you have and notice that you get to create a different story around how you leverage and use your power for for the outcome the impact that you desire right so just play with power as as possibility and something that you perhaps already have at your disposal if you're not used to that as part of your mindset or belief system. Just wake up with the mindset of like, I have power. I have opportunity. I have something at my disposal. What might shift if you woke up with that belief? Mm -hmm. What choices might you make? Yeah. Excellent. And, and finally, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about your work or work with you? Yeah. So I am, um, on LinkedIn at Brigitte Iarusso on LinkedIn. It's really easy to find me. My last name starts with an I. I'm on Facebook, same name, Brigitte Iarusso Soto with my husband's surname. I am also on my website. You can find me there and find access to videos, podcasts like this one, which I'll put up soon um, at embracechange.us. And um, thank you so much again, Leela, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this important topic with you. It's been a pleasure. I always love to get the opportunity to toss this stuff around and you have some really interesting perspectives. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. 
please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.